Welcome to the Reflective Teaching in a Digital Age podcast series. In these conversations, we discuss technology-inspired changes in STEM education. The title of today's episode is Cooperative Learning and Engineering Classrooms. Nicole and I will talk with Dr. Carl Smith, who is a Cooperative Learning Professor of Engineering Education at Purdue University. He is also Moore's Alumni Distinguished University Teaching Professor and Emeritus Professor of Civil, Environmental, and Geoengineering at the University of Minnesota. His research and development interests include building research and innovation capabilities in engineering education, faculty and graduate student professional development, the role of cooperation in learning and design, problem formulation and modeling, and project and knowledge management. Carl, welcome to our podcast series. It's wonderful to have you here, and we're looking forward to discussing cooperative learning with you today and its application for engineering education. And perhaps the introductory first question could be, what is really cooperative learning? What is the background of this approach? And I think for some of the people, there's a little bit of the confusion. Is cooperative learning the same as collaborative learning, or those are different? Thanks, Natasha and uh, Nicole, for inviting me to participate. It's always a, a delight. Uh, cooperative learning uh, is a form of interactive learning. And, uh, you know, one of the best, I think, current frameworks for that is Mickey Chee's ICAP model which argues that interactive is more effective than constructive, is more effective uh, effective than attentive, and doing any, having students do anything is more effective than letting them listen to a lecture. So cooperative learning is, a, is a, quite an old idea. Uh, it, was, it was conceptualized in the 40s, and uh, the underlying theory, social interdependence theory, was developed by Martin Deutsch at Columbia, uh, in the 40s and 50s. And, um, you know, I came to it in the 70s. Uh, I was a new instructor, primarily had a research appointment, but then there were some changes and I was assigned a third year course in thermodynamics uh, and kinetics. And, uh, you know, I went into that course with only one model of instruction. You know, I lectured, I assigned homeworks, and I gave exams. And it didn't work. Students asked questions and indicated didn't have a clue what I was talking about. And rather than blame the students, which was the, the norm back then, and we still hear some of that, could be banned actually from the discourse because, you know, we get very good students and we don't necessarily do all that we could to help them learn. But anyway, instead of blaming the students, I, I started taking courses in the College of Education just to try to find better ways to help people learn. And uh, it, it was amazing. <laughs> I discovered the educational psychology program and people knew something about how people learn, you know, a lot about development, motivation, assessment, et cetera. So it was uh, really uh, pretty thrilling. So I stopped working on a Ph.D. in metallurgical engineering and shifted to a Ph.D. program in, um, in ed psych and uh, and the, the big piece of that was a course I encountered where first day the instructor assigned us to teams and emphasized interdependence. And so there's a lot of dense, uh, challenging content in this course. And some of you can figure it out on your own, but most of you will benefit from working with others. So emphasized uh, interdependence and accountability. 
and it just resonated with me. You know, my work as a researcher, I worked on big, big research projects. I was one part of it, but we had this overriding common goal, which is one of the probably the most important element of, of the Johnson & Johnson cooperative learning model. And we were accountable. And so it, it seemed familiar from my work as a researcher and uh, my work as an engineer in industry. So I thought, well, why wouldn't one do this in, in your classes? So I started implementing it. David Johnson suggested that I start doing systematic experimentations, so really start collecting data. And uh, so I did. And uh, and then help add that to the corpus of the data. And in 81, introduced the idea to the engineering education community uh, in a conference presentation in a Journal of Engineering Education publication. And uh, as you can imagine, it, it wasn't enthusiastically embraced because it was very different from what people were doing. But I came with a lot of data. I came with data and I came with theory. So it couldn't be dismissed kind of out of hand. And, uh, you know, over time, uh, an increasing proportion of faculty have embraced more interactive learning. Some have have embraced the, the cooperative learning model. I mentioned two of the of the basic elements positive interdependence. So your students are linked in such a way that uh, they sink or swim together, essentially. Mm -hmm. And uh, the accountability piece, and those really have to be present uh, for it to be cooperative learning. A third key element is promotive interaction and uh, really about helping others succeed. And of course, we know from a lot of other research as long as it's you know not a tutoring situation, but in a team situation, when people help one another learn, they often learn it more thoroughly themselves. Mm-hmm. So there's you know and that's a key piece. There really needs to be reciprocal benefits. It's not a not a peer tutoring program. Those folks should be paid or get credit. Mm-hmm. So inter- positive independence, individual and group accountability, promotive interaction are are three of the five key elements. The other two are teamwork skills or social skills. You know, students are not, you know, really effective at working together unless they bring a set of skills um, or develop the skills. Skills like listening with care, you know, communicating, taking turns, making decisions in teams, you know, making sure that everybody is, is welcome and included. And in, in many, in many, especially for STEM students, there often isn't a, a lot of formal emphasis on helping people work effectively in teams, and so that's a that's a key piece of the of the cooperative learning model. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the fifth element is group processing, and that's where uh, these teams are provided with a structure, an opportunity, a little bit of time to reflect on and then talk about how well they're working together. And one simple way of doing that, which is fairly widely used, is sometimes called the Boeing plus Delta format. Mm-hmm. That's where, you know, teams talk about what did we do well while working on this activity or this project? That's the plus. And then what could we do even better next time? That's the Delta. And just providing a little time, you know, helps deal with challenges and people get better at working with one another. So that's that's the basic model. Yes, it is similar with the collaborative learning model, which came from a very different theoretical framework. 
and um, was mostly developed in honors programs. And so there's there's a lot less structure. The one common element is uh, positive interdependence. You know, mm-hmm. collaborative learning embraces mm-hmm. the importance of interdependence. However, the other th- pieces like accountability isn't emphasized. So it's just mm-hmm. a, it's a lot less structured. Can be similar, but often, you know, unless you have really, really highly motivated, talented students, it, it uh, doesn't necessarily always go real well. Mm-hmm. And so in 81, when I implemented it you know there was there was interest uh, there was some curiosity and um, over time others you know like uh, rich felder embraced the idea he did a major uh, longitudinal study comparing cooperative learning and and really added to the corpus of, of evidence and, and speaking of of evidence there's several hundred last count probably well over 300. Uh, systematic studies of, of cooperative learning in higher education, mm-hmm. not necessarily all in STEM disciplines. And these have been meta-analyzed. And uh, so, so across several uh, dependent variables, there are effect sizes, you know, which is kind of the, the strength of the, of the finding, standard deviation units. Uh, so achievement has a, an, an effect size of more than 0.5. Interpersonal attractions, about over 0.6. Social support, let's see, between 0.5 and 0.6. Positive attitudes. So it just has a lot of, of uh, empirical research support. And then there are two fairly recent studies that Scott Freeman and colleagues did at University of Washington, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and one of those studies, the meta-analysis indicated that you could re- you can reduce the failure rate, the DFW rate, by 10 to 15 percent just by having students kind of meaningfully and purposefully interacting during class time. The second study, which was published even more recently, shows that the effect is even bigger for historically underrepresented students. Mm-hmm. So the data is not only coming from those of us who have systematically studied cooperative learning, it's coming from others, others too. Oh, and Sandy Aston's work with his uh, social engagement uh, theory has provided corroborating evidence too. Now, his work is more empirical. Um, in an article and then a book that he did on four critical years revisited, what matters in college. He found that there were two things that had highest correlation with academic development, personal development, and satisfaction. One was the frequency and quality of student-student interaction. The other was the frequency and quality of student-faculty interaction. So it's, I mean, the evidence is just overwhelming that if you want more students to learn, to learn more deeply, to feel more engaged and connected, welcomed and included, you've just got to foster student-student, student-faculty interaction. Thank you, Carl. So um, you know the research better than anybody, and we I know some of it, but I'm just thinking for you know our listeners who will be primarily practitioners, 
Um, how would you, going back to the five um, facets that you mentioned of cooperative learning, could you describe for the listeners what that might look like in a large engineering classes, like engineering class, how would they get students to work in a cooperative way in large engineering classes? Or just large classes in general? Or, or large classes. Um, yeah. yeah, it depends. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And uh, it depends on a whole bunch of things. One is, you know, how familiar, how comfortable you are with the practices. Um, so we often suggest that, uh, you know, folks who are new to the idea start early, start small, and build. And uh, it means you need to do something on the first day. So if you're going to ask students to to talk with one another, to work together during class time, you have to start early. Otherwise, you establish a norm that the students listen and you talk, and it's hard to change that. So so one one simple thing, and it's simple if you've done it thousands of times, um, to uh, pose a question, ask students to reflect on it individually, ask them to formulate a response, then ask them to turn to a neighbor and share their response and to listen carefully to their neighbor's response and then to create a shared response. Most of us do is randomly call on people. So, mm-hmm. so we ask them, you know, create a response um, that you'd be willing to share if you're called on. And that doesn't necessarily take very much time. The common vernacular for that is think, pair, share. I prefer the, the language that we use in the informal cooperative learning literature. It's formulate, share, listen, create. Because it's helpful to have that constructive piece of going beyond the individual uh, formulations. That's where the interaction can really add value. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there are many, many faculty who are now doing that, more in disciplines other than STEM, but many find it's just, you know, it's it's an effective use of class time. It keeps students uh, more, you know, connected, more alert. Some people have made it quite famous. Uh, Eric Mazur at Harvard, for example, with this peer instruction model, you know, he combined that with... Um, uh, personal response systems, you know, and it mostly uses it around uh, more difficult concepts to check for understanding. And um, so he likes to ask questions where he's fairly confident that, you know, they won't all agree on what's the what's the correct response. And then, you know, it creates really interesting conversation as they try to explain their reasoning. And he, he has quite a lot of evidence that shows it, it, you know, it's much more engaging. Students learn more, remember it longer, and they, they do a better job of mastering these difficult concepts. Um, so that's that's probably the I mean, it's, it's not easy for lots of faculty to stop talking and give students something to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's a you know, that has a fairly high <laughs> barrier for for some because they're afraid students either won't do anything or. Um, you just sit there and stare at them or, or, or then, you know, when they try it often, they're, they're afraid they won't get, be able to get them to stop talking. <laughs> so, 
which some of us would argue is a good thing. If students are talking about the material, trying to make sense of it, you know, that's that's a good use of time. Now, even though it's it's quite a lot better than doing nothing, these short-term and you know, ad hoc turn-to-your-neighbor groups are are much more effective than students just listening. Uh, however, it's it's far from the best that we know how to do. You know, the best that we know how to do are more structured, so-called formal cooperative learning groups. So any any follow-up uh, questions or thought on, on large classes? I guess, um, so I guess I'm just thinking, you know, you have 50 minutes. You know, most instructors will say I have so much content to cover. Um, and trying to get, you know, and the cooperative learning thing sound, idea sounds really interesting. But then it also ties into how there's research that says we don't actually teach students how to work together. We just put them in a group and hope it happens. And so I guess tips for what they can do to kind of foster this type of interdependence or foster students, you know, choosing to interact and engage with each other and not just a divide and conquer kind of mindset. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and I guess just to add to that also, how do you nurture and support a genuine positive interdependence in right. students? So exactly. it's not just motivated by the great, but they right. actually do have the feeling for that. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that, really, really good questions. Um, just as a bit of an aside, in the late 90s, Jim Cooper, uh, Gene McGregor, Pam Robinson and I uh, did a big uh, interview project, uh, resulted in a book called Strategies for Energizing Large Classes uh, from mm-hmm. Small Groups to Learning Communities. It's, it's one of the very few qualitative studies I've ever been involved in. We identified through um, nominations and self-report folks who said they were doing interesting things in large classes. Mm-hmm. And we set the number at 100 you know, a hundred or more students. And uh, we each talked with about 25 faculty members. And in the, in the final book, which is in the voices of these faculty members with their stories. And one of the most striking pieces of that is almost to a person, each one of us experienced in, in talking with these folks that they were really surprised that we were interested in what they were doing. They said, and this was, we heard this so often, they said, I thought I was the only one. So that isolation for faculty who were, you know, kind of sticking their neck out and doing these things, uh, and one of the things that this project did is it really helped them meet one another. And I think that is a, that's a key uh, to helping faculty get over the activation energy barrier to do this. And that is to either work with colleagues or, you know, have a, have a network that you can share successes and celebrate them and, and problem solve failures. And in a lot of, a lot of faculty, it appears just don't have that kind of access to others who are, who are doing things. I mean, I, I've looked at it closely, but I'm, I'm hopeful that here in the Internet age, it's easier to be able to connect with other folks who are doing similar things and uh, 
and compare notes. So, uh, Nicole, I think you asked, you know, what are some things you can do to try to ensure higher quality work in these teams? Well, first and foremost, make sure that there is a meaningful, challenging enough task that it's actually worthy of taking the time and putting in the effort to use a team. I mean, one of the worst things you can do is think, oh, I, this is it's a good idea. You know, engineers have to work in teams. I guess I should help them learn how to work in teams. And they get a make work project, you know, that one person could do. Or they do, as I think you said, Nicole, the divide and conquer. Well, you do a chunk and you do a chunk. And we just staple it together. Exactly. Um, yeah, and that's that's almost worse than, than nothing at all. So ways of structuring, well, let's, because, you know, that's first and foremost. Make sure there's a good reason for them to work together and that you can structure interdependence and accountability. The next step is there's a whole bunch of decisions that you have to make. How big shall I make these teams? How long do I leave them together? How do I form the teams? How do I work within the physical arrangements? And the answer to all of those uh, questions about decisions is it depends. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's no simple recipe. For the size of the team, it's fairly clear that, that smaller is better and as small as possible. So most of us use teams who use the cooperative learning model between two and four. Uh, I always preferred fours because I could have people work in pairs if I wanted them to do something pretty quickly. Fours if it was a little bigger class activity. Uh, some folks use threes. My colleagues in physics here at Minnesota who have the Minnesota collaborative um, physics model, which has three key pieces, cooperative learning, context-rich problems, and explicitly helping students learn a problem-solving approach. And they use, they use teams of three. They make a, a, a lot of effort not to isolate minorities. In other words, they never put one woman with two men because they have a quite a lot of videotape that shows, you know, if you have one woman with two men, the woman makes a suggestion that would really help the team. It's ignored. She makes it again a little while, ignored again. A little later, one of the two guys makes essentially the same suggestion. The other guy says, great idea, let's do it. You don't have to see a lot of video like that to say, <laughs> we're going to design around this. I wonder if there are situations when there are two females and a man <laughs> and the same scenario would play. Maybe it does, but I, 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 I haven't seen that video. <laughs> you know, the women are usually better at involving, you know, these are first year students. So they're, mm -hmm. you know, they're right out of high school. They're, you know, they're, I mean, they vary developmentally, but um, they're not real good at um, bringing people in. The other is with minority students. It's important to have diversity on teams, but you just have to help people connect with existing support networks. So putting two people who speak the same language together in a team so that if they're having a difficult stretch, they can, they can sort it out in their native tongue, that makes a quite a difference. So, so thinking about things like that, there's a, you know, a, 
you know, a very strong recommendation in the cooperative learning research and practice community of the instructor assigns the teams. There are just too many disasters from letting students choose their own, even though they often want to, because they choose their friends and, and you know, friendship dynamics sometimes are not highly task oriented. Even more concerning is people get left out. People who aren't chosen by anyone. And uh, so just assign them. I mean, the quickest and easiest is just randomly assign them. I mean, for years, I taught a course that had over 100 students. Uh, the room, you, they could pack 120 in, so I have to add 120. First day, we counted off. I formed them into teams of four. I said, you know, we're going to be using teams. We'll, we'll keep these teams together for a week or so, and then uh, then we'll switch. Because investing a lot in forming teams, at least at that time, in what was still is uh, a, largely a commuting campus, not everybody showed up on the first day of class. Some people came to the first class, looked at the syllabus, said, mm, not this semester, and then they didn't <laughs> come back. So... You know, it just didn't make sense to invest a lot of time. But after a, a week or two, um, I gave each student the opportunity to express preferences. You know, so we're going to form new teams. If you have preferences for folks you'd like to work with, put your name. I always use index cards and put your name on the card and then list one or two people that you would like to work with. And one, I've done that tens of times. And one of the huge surprises was the proportion of the students, <clears throat> excuse me, who selected other students in that initial randomly assigned team. I mean, these were often, I think, students who didn't know others. So they've met and they've interacted with these other folks <laughs> for a couple hours and say, well, I'm going to go with these folks, you know, rather than the luck of the draw. <laughs> and I, I was always, that always flabbergasted me. Of course, the fraternity folk would always list all their, you know, their mates, and, and I, but, I, but I'd maybe pick one, you know, and then put two others in that same team uh, with teams of four. And there was a little bit of resistance, but uh, not a lot. As, as long as you make effective use of the, of the team's time and practice and build quality in, these folks are highly, I mean, we're really fortunate in engineering to work with highly task-oriented folk. And I was chatting with Rich Felder last week. We're working on a, a chapter together, and, you know, he had a very similar experience. You know, he had some resistance of, to assigning teams, but it, it was short-lived. So then, you know, how long do you leave them together? Yeah, that's it. Again, it, it depends. Not every team works equally well. And so it's, it's sometimes come down, it comes down to a, to a fairness issue. You know, if, if somebody is not kind of carrying their weight in a team, you know, it becomes a, you know, a burden. Or if somebody's forceful, you know, um, dogmatic, you know, that's a pain too. And so that, that's the main reason that I, I changed teams, you know, a couple times during the semester. And, uh, they always complained a lot. But uh, and I said, hey, in the workplace, you don't pick your teams, you know, and the teams, you know, only stay together until the until the task is finished and then they change. So you need to learn how to do that. Carl, you know, it's it's very interesting because Nicole and I talked um, a lot about 
learning how to work together with other people. And I think what's really interesting and somewhat, I guess, surprising to me is that we put so much expectation, especially on the first year engineers, to know how to work together. And then I think for a lot of the instructors, there's a revelation that students really have difficulties knowing how they should work together with other students. I think there is this maybe societal confusion about being social versus knowing how to work together with other people. Most of the time in the K-12, through there's really not many places where students can learn how do they need to work together. And I just always wonder whether this is something that we should really emphasize in education much, much earlier on. So students know their own habits, know their own tendencies. Like you say, if somebody is dominating in the team or if somebody is a little bit too shy and how they can figure out their way and um, still effectively and productively work with others. Well, those of us who advocate for interactive learning uh, would support that, you know, start early, you know, help people really learn how to work with one another when, when it's appropriate. We do a, we do a great job in, in, in my view of, of helping people learn how to compete with one another, uh, with all kinds of, you know, contests and grades and what have you. And it's an important skill. There's no question. You know, there are there are times when it clearly is a competition and yours just has to be better. But much of work and and personal life, you know, it's it's not a competition. You know, you really need to be able to work together and help one another and support one another. And uh, um, and, and we just don't do as much, I think, to, to help people master those skills when when that's appropriate. And in my view, it's appropriate. I mean, in personal relationships, you know, on the job, really having the skills for coming together and, and working together, uh, you know, is, is, is really important. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it, it, you know, in thinking about engineering programs again, we, there's some emphasis in the first year. There's now, uh, we reinstated after, you know, engineering criteria 2000, you know, the, ABET, um, you know, the capstone, which is almost entirely done in teams. But mm-hmm. often it's only those two experiences uh, in the four years or five years or there where, where students experience uh, uh, more emphasis on teamwork. And it's just not enough mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. you know, as Ruth and I, Ruth Strebler and I argue, you, you know, you really need distributed practice. Mm-hmm. You know, learning requires deliberate, distributed practice. And tr- just doing it in those two is just, it's not enough. It's not mm-hmm. enough practice. Thank you. So, Carl, would you agree that there needs to be some kind of, on the part of the practitioner, skills in scaling um, cooperative learning or even teamwork activities? Because the capstone it's a whole year. So in some cases, yeah. they work on the capstone project from the beginning of their final year straight through to the end, which involves two semesters in some places or three quarters or whatever their school um, system right. is like. But if I think of, you know, the junior, well, my, at least my experience in the junior, sophomore and junior engineering classes, they're so content heavy. But to your point, there could be some group, like 
you know, project-based, group-based teamwork focus activity that instructors could do just so, you know, like almost like a mini capstone, if you will, to foreshadow the big capstone that's coming because students really do lack this kind of experience, especially in the middle years. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, um, and yes, you know, faculty, uh, you know, say, well, I, you know, I have to cover and, and, and that, that's just such a flawed idea uh, that you can cover material for somebody else. You know, as we argue, your, your role is to uncover it with the students, not mm-hmm. cover it for them. <laughs> as, as Carl Rogers said, you know, to cover means to hide. You know, <laughs> why are we hiding stuff from the students? <laughs> I could. I want to come back to something that Nicole asked, and that is, well, what what else uh, might you do? Sure. Uh, there's a third type of cooperative learning group, in addition to informal, you know, the short-term ad hoc, turn to your neighbor, the formal, which are uh, task groups, you know, that are more highly structured, that have a deliverable, usually, you know, one product from the group, everybody has to sign off that they contributed to, they understand, and they can explain it. There's a third type of group that's called a cooperative base group. And it's a group that's created for personal and academic support. And a lot of non-residential programs, um, especially professional education programs, form students into, they call them study groups, but they are long-term groups where people stay together and their goal is to help one another succeed in the program. That's the core idea of a cooperative-based group. For example, for, for many, many years, I taught in a professional master's program at Minnesota. Uh, it's called the Management of Technology. It's an MBA-like program, except it's for technical people. And we always form people into fairly diverse, typically five-person study groups, and they met every week. And it's, it was very common for folks to say, I wouldn't have made it if it hadn't been for my study group. Still gives me shivers. And that's a pretty common experience from students who, who who experience these long-term groups that exist for support and encouragement. And so I don't, I don't think base groups are real widely used. I mean, I use them in my classes. And I think one of the things that the pandemic has, has really shed a lot of light on is the need for personal and academic support. You know, especially peer support. And that's that's a mechanism, uh, you know, for doing it. Mm-hmm. And Carl, I guess for some of the instructors who maybe taught their classes more traditionally, and you know, have this problem, just what Nicole mentioned, you know, I have to have to cover this, um, <laughs> you know, all of those topics. What is the first step they can take today? to turn it a little bit around, to make the student learning experiences more cooperative? One or two things that they could do in their classrooms. Even before, you know, thinking about cooperative learning, you know, part of the the coverage mindset uh, kind of treats all the material the same. And, And yet we know that some 
some parts of the material are are far more important than others. Some parts are are much harder to learn than others. You know, so so first and foremost, if you're going to shift to from a coverage approach to an uncoverage, you really need to think about well, what do we need to uncover? Mm-hmm. And you know, Strivler and I talk about this as the enduring outcomes. What are the really big ideas that are at the heart of the of the discipline that you want to ensure that students learn or overlearn? And then there are other things, you know, kind of to get to the point of nice to know. Well, you know, it might be nice, but it's not essential. And making that decision frees up a lot of time. That not everything needs to be covered the same way. Some things need to be revisited. You know, that's the distributed piece, like with the spiral curriculum, the Jerome Bruner idea. You know, they need to be revisited throughout the course and maybe throughout the program. And, uh, you know, to really ensure that, that students master them. So I think that that needs to be done either in conjunction with or prior to the use of interactive learning. Because mm-hmm. you really need to, to think about what do I want these teams to focus on? And it can't be everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even, you know, as Bruner said, you know, you can't live, learn everything by discovery. And he's the person who, you know, championed the inquiry idea. You have to decide, you know, which things really merit. So, you know, a complex multi and a dimensional task is a good place to use formal cooperative learning because it gives people the teamwork experience and they're, they're more likely to, to master the material if they're really helping one another through it. You know, for very early career faculty who are often pretty enthusiastic and eager to try new ideas, but they may or may not be in a safe place, you know, in their in their department to, you know, to try something that's quite a lot different from what their colleagues are doing. So, I, you know, I, I suggest, you know, start early, start small, talk with a colleague, find a champion among senior colleagues. Maybe somebody who's doing some of these things or, you know, who's, you know, willing to, uh, you know, to listen to you as you try these things. And um, that, that, I think that's that's pretty important. None of it's none of it's easy, though, I mean, because, you know, PhDs, uh, engineering PhDs have been so deeply socialized into a practice of, you know, lecture, homework, exams. It's all, it's all most of them have seen, and they, they were very, very successful at it. You know, even imagining doing something other than that is, is a stretch. For, mm-hmm. Although, I mean, we're seeing more and more early career faculty uh, who have been through the preparing future faculty programs or, you know, they they begin to take courses or, or workshops as grad students where they learn more about how people learn, how to design instruction, you know, how to how to align, you know, outcomes, uh, assessment and instruction. And uh, I think, you know, that's it, it's it's been helping over time. Yeah. 
think it's also what's interesting. Part of the importance of preparing students to work together, to work in teams, is their future workplaces Mm -hmm. that frequently will rely heavily on teamwork, on global teamwork as well. So having the skill set is is really a necessity. Yeah, excellent point, Natasha. Yeah, the you know the employer surveys, you know, survey after survey shows that uh, in areas, uh, engineering in particular, employers are, are fine with the technical preparation. Their big concerns are about their skills and, and, uh, and willingness to work with others, to communicate effectively. And, uh, and you know, that pops up again and again on these, you know, the employer uh, survey, you know, they wish people were more skillful, knowledgeable and skillful at working with others. So I'm cognizant of the time here, but, you know, Carl, if you if you had a wish list uh, for <laughs> engineering education as it relates to sufficiently or even just attempting to prepare students based on these these issues, what would it be? Well, I think we're I think we're living it, Nicole. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're graduating engineering education PhDs and we're embedding them in departments. It's subversive. I love it. Um, you know, changing departments is, is really hard. Yeah. Uh, and but having having folks who actually know quite a lot about, you know, how people learn, how to design effective instruction, how to how to do effective assessment. You know, and, and know it in a content area, I think, you know, it's, it's just going to continue to, to have an, to have an effect. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I think engineering education PhDs and now these like the graduate teaching certificate program, um, both Ruth and I are finding that most of the participants are, are not engineering education majors. They're coming from traditional disciplines, you know, and many of them are interested in considering an academic job and, uh, you know, genuinely interested in helping people learn. And it was a tough year last year for these grad students who were either, you know, instructor of record or TAs. They just did everything they knew how to, to help, help people succeed. But not being able to see them in person was a, was a quite a challenge. And so I think we just need to hang in there and keep, in, you know, reminding people we have the evidence, you know, we have the data. But the data doesn't, you know, I mean, it's it's an important piece. It, this takes, you know, folks uh, who are who are willing to step up and help others. And I mean, the the indications are that, like from the UCLA Higher Ed Research Institute's uh, faculty survey that they run every three years, the undergraduate survey, started in '89, and over over that period, there's been a marked increase in the proportion of faculty who report that they use cooperative learning. Mm -hmm. There's also a huge decrease in the proportion of faculty who say they grade on a curve. The majority of faculty are now using criterion reference grading and extensive lecturing has decreased. It's a little grimmer in, in STEM disciplines, especially STEM men have the highest frequency of sense of lecturing, grading on a curve, not using any kind of interactive opportunities in class. But one of the encouraging pieces from those data 
are the difference between women faculty and men faculty. Women have embraced these evidence-based practices by and large uh, across the academy, including in STEM disciplines. So as we increase the proportion of women in engineering faculty positions, I think, again, we're going to see an increase in, in the use of these effective practices. Thank you. That might be wishful thinking, but, uh, you know, I'm just eternally hopeful. (laughs) Carlito, a question that came to my mind, if you have any recommendation for some of the instructors who are teaching, using cooperative learning approaches in their teaching, what are the some common mistakes that you've seen people are doing? I don't know if there are any red flags or something that instructors should be cautious about. Um, One thing that you know, for years I did a lot of faculty workshops, and um, and then I really developed a sense that these one-time workshops were. I mean, people reported that they were helpful, they liked them, but in terms of impact, I really just didn't feel they had a lot of impact. So I switched to actually working for a longer period of time. Recently, I partner with someone at the institution or more than one person at the institution to co-facilitate. So it's kind of like developing local leadership. And one of the things that we see, especially from some, you know, energetic folk, is they just think, oh, wow, this is a great idea. There's, you know, it's it's there's all this evidence of how effective it is. I'm just going to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, and they jump in and do too much and it fails <laughs> miserably and then it's tough for them to, to do it again so mm-hmm. uh, you know until I mean there's a lot of meta level knowledge and skill that's required for any teaching practice if you're going to be effective at it you really have to be paying attention to a whole bunch of things and you're making decisions all the time and uh, it's the same with with using interactive learning of any any type take some time to build up that personal knowledge about, you know, how it works and, you know, how you can avoid things that don't work and, and just, mm-hmm. and, you know, so that, that's a big one, I think. Okay. I think we had wonderful conversation and Carl, I, I hope, hope there's we'll... uh, five or 10 minutes of it that you can use. <laughs> <laughs> It was just really interesting to learn from you about this approach. And I think especially in the time of digital changes, mm-hmm. working together is really valuable. And figuring out how to do it better is incredibly important. So we're very thankful for your time, Carl. Yeah. You. And, you know, the kinds of things that work in real time face to face, I think we've seen from, you know, it's not the same as being there in person. Because there's a, there's a lot that gets communicated, I think, uh, when you're real-time face-to-face that's hard in the two-dimensional, you know, screens. Uh, but I think, you know, a lot of – we still can foster uh, meaningful, purposeful interaction uh, in remote environments. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I you know, I think we have you – know, we've seen that, you know, in, in so many things that, that faculty – you know, prior to you know, everybody shifting to remote learning, you know, in fact, said, oh, we just couldn't do this. Well, we had to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, things that faculty said couldn't be done. Well, we did them. <laughs> you know, That's so, right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think we just need to continue, you know, making sure that that we're providing the best learning opportunities and learning experiences for all learners, and uh, not just those who are, are like us and get everything on the in the first lecture. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good point.